Wine Monk Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Good evening, morning, and afternoon, and good night, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm the Arizona Wine Monk. I'm here with Richard Barrett and Bess Garner and Richard's lovely, lovely wife, Megan. Uh, we are going to be talking about the Union de Tres Rojos from Flying Leap, as well as doing a crossover episode with um, the esteemed Richard Barrett's podcast, A Sacrifice of Praise, which is about Byzantine chant and uh, Byzantine sacred music, or Orthodox sacred music. And it's a joint effort with my good friend Amy Hogue out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I decided to go with the Union de Tres Rojos for today because it's a Bordeaux blend of three of the... Tri- Technically, left bank Bordeaux. No, right bank. I spent the end. Left bank. This is me judging you, Cody. (laughs) (laughs) Right bank was Merlot. That's right. Right bank is Merlot because on my right hand you can make an M. That's how I remember it. Although clearly that mnemonic has not worked at all. (laughs) So I need to find a new mnemonic. I need to learn how to pronounce that. That's easy for you to say. (laughs) That's multiple mnemonics. Do we need to cut you off already? But we haven't even poured. Um. New exciting decanter. So we're going to have this decanter, and then I'm going to pour a couple of glasses from so it. So we have the decanter, and we have the canter. Ha! I used to be an Anglican canter. You did? So yes. we got the decanters with the canters. Very good. Very good. People tell me I should sing tenor, 10 or 11 miles away. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They like, it when, they like it when you sing solo, solo you, they can't hear you. Exactly. And Bess right. does the whole, I hold E song. I used to do a really good Ralph Wiggum, and I can't do it anymore. Ma- Megan is a very, very good singer and chanter. I have your glass. Uh, she just, she, she's, she's been away from it uh, with kids. You're, you're on an extended, kids, you're, you're on an extended maternity break from the Analogion, but hopefully. Man, I remember, ex- man, I remember extended maternity break from the Analogion. They were a great post-punk band in the '70s. Uh-huh. <laughs> they were, they were. Uh, Oh and and they had the, they had that they had that fantastic biz chant punk song tone screw you <laughs> in the screw you tone something in the something tone and I screwed this up already I need to punch in your pen anyway so the reason why I did to the special to... melody of get out of my face <laughs> <laughs> so so the reason why I chose the Union de Tres Rojos is not only is it a very classic style blend. But it's a blend of three grapes, and it's called Union de Tres Rojos. So the thought I had was, oh, like the Trinity. Except, you know, any sort of analog to the Trinity doesn't work. Because, oh, that's partialism, Patrick. That's modalism, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. <laughs> Get it together, Patrick. Explain it to us like we're five-year-olds, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> what, was the, what was the one for the, for the, for the Voltron? What that was, was partialism. Oh, yeah. Partialism? I'm going to stop you right Arian. there. <laughs> and, I, and and who proclaimed partialism? In the season, first season, season one of the of the hit anime series Voltron, Patrick. And we haven't <laughs> even gotten started yet. Well, this is just how we are because we're all Did, nerds. Did we do this the last time we recorded the podcast? I think so. Yes, because it was St. Patrick's Day. Yes, it was St. Patrick's Day, we and we were. The, we did the Gewurztraminer off. Gewurztraminer, I hardly know her. <laughs> Very nice. 
Very nice. What can I say? I, I like wine so puns. Do we clean curve? We can. Okay. Yamash. Slancha. <laughs> Prost. Um, yakida. Yasas? Uh, yeah, uh, Yamash. So anyway, the idea was that this would be a good wine to tie in with theology and chant and sacred music and... Oh, the nose is amazing. Yes, but I mean, as soon as you opened the bottle and started pouring, it was like the nose comes across really fast. The nose, the nose. Well, sh surely somebody somewhere has talked about fermentation as uh, um, uh, as having th um, theological connotations with uh, the transformation of the bread and wine, right? No, no, no I, one I would, to my knowledge has. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's the image of of, of leaven, right? There and uh, leaven transformation and the transformation in the spirit being the uh, being leavened by the spirit and so on. But um, it seemed to me that fermentation would. There, there's also the in the Roman rite. There's the so-called fermentum, which is. Um, the uh, when uh, from the papal liturgy, there is a uh, uh, a bit of the, the the consecrated host that is sent out to all of the other altars in the city. Huh. Um, so the the, the, the the you have a, a presence of the pope um, at at all of the the city at all of the the altars in the city of Rome. Um, well, this is the, a, the entire city of Rome, or just the Vatican? Well, this is this is a late antique practice. This isn't done anymore, I don't think. Um, it would be cool. But you know, when if anyone were to bring that back, it would be Francis. In in late antique Rome, when you had you know twenty some odd uh, churches in the city, then it was a little reasonable. More, a little more reasonable. Well, cheers to old and new friends. Indeed. So what I'm getting from the nose is this sort of rich baking spice, and that's imparted sort of like a vanilla nutmeg character, and that's going to be imparted by the oak. Um, I'm not sure how much new oak or old oak this wine saw, but I know that um, Rolf down at Flying Leap, who is the, the winemaker, Rose is now his assistant. Um, he doesn't like to use all of one style because he finds it's, it's in uh, Germanic practicality, too boring. Rolf uh, is fun. I met him very briefly, right? I don't think... Yes, you did, at the, at the, the gala. Yeah. Um, so Flying Leap uh, is one of the biggest vineyards in terms of production and size down in Wilcox. And this is a mm -hmm. blend from two different Arizona wine regions. Okay. Um, so you've got four main wine regions in Arizona so far. You have uh, Wilcox, which is growing about 74% of all of Arizona's grapes and wines. And you have uh, Sonoy and Elgin, which is the oldest AVA in the state, American Viticultural Area. You have the Verde Valley, which actually has the longest history of wine production in the state of Arizona, but it's the newest in terms of, well, second newest in terms of production. They're working on getting it as an AVA. Um, and then you have Chino Valley on the other side of the mountain, which is the only place in Arizona for Pinot uh, and Burgundian varietals. And I, they're also now planting some German varietals like Gewürztraminer and Riesling. All the um, Pinots or just the Pinot Noir? Pinot Noir, um, he's planning, uh, Del Rio Springs, they're planning on planting Pinot Blanc as well. Uh, Pinot Grigio, there's a fair bit grown in Wilcox, but Pinot Grigio does better in Arizona than Pinot Noir does. Is anyone doing Meunier yet? Uh, he has two vines of Meunier. I'm trying to get him to plant more. 
We found a, a lovely Pinot Meunier at um, Westport, Westport River uh, that, we, that we had with Gary. Yes, for uh, Gary and Lisa and other people whose names I can't remember Christine right now. Christine Dave. They were awesome. Christine Dave were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we had that with the, with the um, duck. Yes, we did. That was a great time. So in terms of this wine itself, I'm going to read the back of the label. Um, so it's the 2014 Union de Tres Rojos from Arizona. has Arizona as an appellation because it's a blend of two different regions from two different counties. Um, and according to Arizona law and general liquor law, you can't categorize it past an appellation of state for that reason. What? Arizona's considered appellation? Uh, <laughs> isn't that a little far west? Well, there's appellation for the mountains and then appellation for, for labeling. And uh, I'm over-explaining the pun. Yes, you are. <laughs> it's, it's still, you, you've still got the same, a lot of the simil, similar politics. Yes. But. Yeah, kind of backwards. But never mind that now. Yes. Never mind that now, booze. I'm booze. getting, um, can I just interject real quick? Of course. I'm getting like tart cherries. Anyone else getting tart mm -hmm. cherries off mm -hmm. Sure. I haven't even approached the, the palate yet. Yep. And I haven't even, I haven't sipped it yet. I'm just thinking. Oh, that's nice. Both, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's got very nice legs. Legs in a wine actually don't really tell you much of anything. Uh, yes, fun fact. I've heard that, but they're still nice to look at. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like legs in a woman. It's nice to look at, but it doesn't really tell you much other than how fast it runs away. <laughs> what do my legs tell No, we're not going to go there. Um, my legs say, ow, ow. Yeah, ow. I was actually going <laughs> to... So, believe it or not, there are wineries in Indiana. Um, and uh, there was a, a, a uh, more than halfway decent... Uh, winery just about 15 minutes north of Bloomington, Oliver Winery, and we, 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 we did tastings there many, many times when we lived, lived there, and they explained as well that the legs don't really tell you anything except just that the wine is made properly. Yeah, that it has booze, Yeah, uh, and sometimes it can tell you kind of how much residual sugar is in the wine, because a wine that has more RS, residual sugar, will have thicker legs. Um, so anyway... To read the back of the label, Union is a Bordeaux-style blended merger of wines from Arsana Cruz and Cochise County Vineyards. Um, we grow a small block of Cabernet Sauvignon on our state vineyard in Elgin, Santa Cruz County, mm -hmm. uh, where the high altitude and dry, 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 arid climate make the vine struggle. This produces small, dense, and intensely flavorful clusters of fruit. We blend in Petit Verdot and Cabernet Franc from our Wilcox area vineyards, creating this smooth, Balanced wine. Union is a richly flavored blend with distinctive notes of caramel, rhubarb, and blackberries. Supposedly, I have really, I get the caramel, I get the blackberries. I haven't noticed rhubarb. But I get rhubarb, but I don't get, a little get blackberry. Bit of I get mulberry. I do. Yeah, you're right. This is more more notes of. Well, the thing is, whenever well, quite, someone says, when I'm <laughs> tasting notes on a bottle are more like, you know, guidelines really, and mm -hmm. I actually hate seeing tasting notes on bottles because. I don't want someone to tell me what I'm going to be tasting. I want to, you know, find out for myself. It's sure. More fun in the adventure. Oh, bite. Sure. A, yeah, a, I, can, I can taste it. Oh, that's the tannins. This totally has some tannins. What would be a good pairing with this, do you think? Um, steak. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Um, London broil. Barbecue, brisket, mm. potentially. Oh, good. Something spicy like, uh, this could actually work with Indian food. Sure. I um, we're having sure. Indian food later. Um, ah, where are you going for that? And this I this says know. the back of the label says grilled meats, spicy foods, and well aged right. cheeses. We're, we're going to uh, Somerville. We're somewhere in Somerville. 
Ah, okay, okay. Uh, yes, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, I, I should mention Rachel and James, who are, we're going to see later, just because then maybe Rachel and James will listen to the podcast. I'm, and I'm bringing for them a bottle of uh, the wine that I jokingly refer to as my bay. Um, Malvasia B. Bianca, or as I like to call it sometimes when I'm about to get punched, Malvasia Bay Bianca. Or I call it Captain Pike Pants Bianca. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Captain Mouse. Um, but anyway, um, that's, I think, one of the best white grapes for Arizona. Um, but that's neither here nor there, and I've talked about it in many other episodes of podcasts mm-hmm. and many blog entries. Yes, um, we did our, our first podcast with my intro to Malvasia, because yes, uh, I'd never had it. Which reminds me to continue the inside joke. Uh, Bass is modestly clothed again today in a keg scarf uh, that purple, has... Purple batik. Purple batik with light purple and dark purple. Yes, yes. Um, I'll explain more of the inside joke later. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> I started head covering in January, and so and we've gone from there. So. All right. <laughs> but anyway, um, the blend is 63% Cabernet Sauvignon, and that's 100%... Uh, from uh, the Elgin AVA, mm-hmm. 21% Cobb Franc and 16% Petit Verdot. Uh, 37% there is coming from Cochise County, the Wilcox AVA. Um, 15.3% alcohol, so it's a pretty respectable Bordeaux-style blend. That's kind of normal for a Bordeaux-style blend, or as if you're following your old English words, not old, old English, like real old English, but like older English terminology, uh, claret uh, okay. is a traditional... British yes. version yeah. name for this stuff. That's important in this. Yes, you're, you're you're sitting at a table with somebody who is a medieval Germanicist by training, so. which is which is. She'd be ready to pounce on you. Yeah, exactly. Like that's if, why if, I, if you say that uh, Shakespeare is Old English, she will. Uh, it's not even Middle English. It's not even Middle English, and it should be the old karaoke. I almost said the old karaoke shop. The old karaoke shop. Wouldn't it then be called the old singing machine shop? <laughs> Probably. The old, the old provide your own voice. <laughs> provide your own vocals. But as, uh, as everyone at this table probably knows, the, the ye is a corruption of the thorn. Yes. Uh, which is yes. TH. I love it when people know that. It makes me Some, I used to, on my old phone, be able to make the thorn as a letter, and so occasionally whenever I was feeling goofy or when I was really drunk, I would... Use that as my th's. Mm-hmm. I, I like to, to pronounce everything ye oldie, right. choppy. So just going off of what you just said, you could conceivably have a wine and cochise party. Yes, you could. Totally. And now I'm thinking of what cheeses do I want to put with this? Because I cheddar, something like a smoked gouda or smoked cheddar. You want something definitely smoky. strong and smoky because this has a very strong just, smoky. Just no smoked batta. <laughs> so I just I keep throwing them out until somebody laughs. What can I say? I, I you know myself. I really really like wine puns. I think they're great, but I realize that this is a matter of a pinot. Uh, Put a cork in that man. Yeah, I know. I get that in a lot. Mm-hmm. No, screw you. Cork screw you. No, mm. I'm not the best at puns. I'm terrible, so I'm speaking out of this. <laughs> I'm this learning. Cody, Cody and my father. Well, you two can be all in the penitentiary over there. <laughs> no, no, too obvious. Yeah. Too obvious. The best uh, pun about punning that I ever heard was um, was in my brain a moment ago, and it left. It'll come back. 
but it was a it was based off of a a, um, a really strange word for pun. Go go listen to the bugle and eventually you'll find it. That makes me think a little bit of Terry Pratchett, where pun is pr- spelled P-U-N-E, pune or play on words. Um. Oh yeah. So this is as we were trying to figure out, and my mnemonic failed horribly. A right bank Bordeaux. That's your left hand. As I make this with my left hand. Yes. Whatever. Right bank. Uh, a right One, bank Bordeaux. Two, five, three serve. Three serve. Uh, I'm studying for this CSW right now, and a lot of these things are swimming through my head and just like massively disordered clumps, uh, like an unfiltered wine that needs to be poured through a, fil- well, a, a filter. My sediments exactly. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not equipped to deal with all these puns. Oh. Any Don't bottle por- it up. Tell us how you really feel. Any port in a storm. <laughs> I hope one day to have a uh, a port in the tasting room, and then I can use that pun all the time. You'll have everybody over a barrel if that happens. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the difference between right bank and left bank is that uh, the one of the banks, the right bank, uses more Cabernet Sauvignon uh, versus the left bank, which uses Merlot as the main grape. Um, so since this is mostly Cabernet Sauvignon, this is more of that, uh, right bank style. Um, there's very little Petit Verdot, though, now in Bordeaux. Actually, there's more Petit Verdot in this blend here than what you'll find in most Bordeaux blends, because most of them are like Cab Sauv and Cab Franc and Merlot, and then Carmenere and Malbec and, um, Petit Verdot are almost never used anymore, and they're pretty much just planted for places in show, like... Yes, these grapes came from here. Look at us. Are we special? <laughs> um, that, that's the French all over. Good, good job. That's, we have the thing. Ergo, we are French. Ergo, we are awesome. Because we are French. Because we have this thing. Well, I, I guess that's good that they're very frank about that. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I actually lived, um, the time, this is not a pun, but I, but when I uh, lived in France, I was in the Franche-Comté which is where Besançon is, and the Franche-Comté, it literally means the, the county where everyone will be frank with you. <laughs> there, is no, there is no BS in, um, in Besançon, because even though there are a B and an S and a C city, <laughs> but uh, yes, everyone will just be straight up with you, including the people who will tell you on the street, we can tell that you are a student at the language school, you should be speaking French right now. <laughs> well, if, you, <laughs> if you have a patchouli stick from uh, from Paris, is that frankincense? Ha- uh. <laughs> <laughs> this wine, much like our podcast, is unfiltered. <laughs> uh, for the record. Um, so yeah, I, I like Flying Leap. They also just started a dis- uh, distillery. Um, or distilling, I should say. Uh, they finally making opened their brandy. spirits room. Uh, brandy. Uh, they're also making vodka, mm-hmm. uh, eau de vies, and, and different liqueurs. Uh, they're also working on doing whiskeys. And they just finished up making uh, a rye whiskey that's now in barrel. And I'm looking very forward to that because I love my rye whiskey. Uh, that's a really whiskey undertaking. It is. You have no idea. Um, it could scotch the whole works. It could. And, and you know... 
I really hope that they, they do one featuring one of the local birds of that region and they can call it the, the multi-falcon. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that would really go against the grain myself. Probably, but uh, what so can I say? It's my uh, on the podcast. <laughs> you know. have nothing to say about the wine except it's good. It's bad. It's interesting. But he would throw the pun. So yeah. as, a, as a small child, I lived a five-minute drive from Chateau Saint-Michel Winery in the Seattle area. Oh, uh, good reason. In, in Woodenville, Washington. Did, did you ever find a Riesling to go there, or? Yeah, I, you got to that before me. It was in my head. It's part of my problem with puns. I'm just too slow on, on the draw. Gosh, yeah. That's the problem here, too. But they're, they're, she has, she does not want to make a gin yet, because she hates, well, it doesn't, it's not that Rose hates gin, it's just that she wants to do a lot of other fun stuff, too. But mm -hmm. we had that really good gin. Oh yeah, from Three Wells. With uh, combined with a New England vermouth, and then uh, lemon. Yes, from from, from um, Westport Rivers. Uh huh. So uh, as so part they, of her welcoming. Three different vermouths. There's a there's a gin made in Boston that isn't bad. I'm trying to remember what it's called. I've had a couple of we 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 bought it a couple of times. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Boston it's, Sapphire. Yeah, it's yeah. not quite that. Um, it's I'm trying to remember the name of it. I can't. In my the, the 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 house gin here is is Bombay Sapphire. Our our marriage is kind of based on Bom Bombay Sapphire to a certain That's extent. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Bombay Sapphire and Maker's Mark bourbon. Yep. I see both over there. Yes, yeah. you do. That means our marriage. Maker's Mark whiskey. I don't see Maker's Mark bourbon. Well, that is bourbon. Oh, okay. Because all I can see is whiskey. It it's called whiskey, whiskey but technically uh, Maker's Mark because the way it's made. Uh, and its percentage of corn use uh, qualifies as a bourbon. Yeah. If I, see, I think if it I has had, to be uh, 60, over sixty-one percent is. If I had optical bourbon, insurance, I maybe I could have, maybe I could have read that better. Well, no, it's I just. Do, and I still, it just says whiskey. It, it, it certainly yeah. lends yeah. itself to seeing better when you have it. Uh, well, if you're gonna go with that frame of reference, uh, whiskey you know, I, I, is I, the life of I, I, I had trouble seeing once, but I went to the optimist, and he told me everything would be fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember, the, you guys have all seen the meme where it's like, how are you handling life right now? It's the boat that, that's sinking and the boat is called No Worries. It's just the bow and someone's standing on the bow. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's like a cat standing on the bow in one of them, one of the shots of it. Come on. The, 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 the presence of, uh, of uh, whiskey and, and uh, the presence of a, a bottle of Maker's Mark and a bottle of Bombay Sapphire and a liquor cabinet that means our marriage is still healthy. Uh, it's always good. I, I don't know if, if we had a, I Stop guess it would be wine honey. for yeah. us. I mean, yeah, because they, they weren't serving any alcohol the night of the karaoke. so Probably for the better. <laughs> that would have been. Seminarians are interesting when, when drunk or tipsy. And well, they're interesting when sober, too, but. See, we had a, the, the Perea that I hung out with for, for listeners at home, Perea. It's the Greek, Greek word for click. Yes, your click, or or and it's also a verb to hang out. Yes. Pareo, uh, etc. Paro? Um, I don't know. I my modern Greek is is not particularly good. Um, I, I'm mostly a biblical Greek person, but yeah, I probably um, shouldn't pour that over the. Yes. So, um, Parea is is your click, and 
it also means to hang out. Um, but, and my sister's Perea was particularly uh, fond of mythos. AKA water. <laughs> yeah. I try, I did Greek try. Bud Light. I yeah. did try it. <laughs> it, was, it was okay. I found it superior to a lot of American quote-unquote beers. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. It's but. Basically, if you go to a street kiosk in Greece, they have Mythos and they have Heineken. Okay. And, and, it, and Magnum ice cream bars. Yeah, well, there's that too. And, uh, and, uh, and playing cards with images of obscene ancient Greek statuary on it. <laughs> that, would be, uh, that would be a wonderful gift to send to Catherine. I, the, the, I, I'm pretty sure they already. Major, so. I know, but I'm also pretty sure that both of them plot it, are plotting my doom. So, wow, those satyrs are really happy, aren't they? <laughs> Is that a satyr in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? I think they're happy to see you on those planes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, satyrs are always happy to see you. It's my, hard, it, you know, it's it, it's it's hard to imagine them not being. I like fawns better because I can say. <laughs> so what you're saying is you're really fond of that. Well, yes, I, I fawn over them. Oh, yeah. That, that's a better one than the one I had. <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't be satyr see him go. Oh. Womp womp. Yes. <sighs> Actually, I would be satyr see him go. That was a poorly constructed pun. <laughs> or a poor setup, anyway. Uh, you, 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 uh, uh, it's all great you, 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 you heard about the saint who is uh, half goat, half man. You can see his image. It's on a satyr icon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm getting a lot of crushed violets on the nose of this wine now. I'm getting a lot of courtesy laughs. <laughs> I'm finding that the the longest lasting flavor, um, whatever, I don't know terminology, but the 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 flavor that stays the longest is a like a tart cherry. Totally. Tart cherry, a little bit of cinnamon, nutmeg. Um, I'm getting now the rhubarb, the black, the mulberries that you said. Um, We used to pick mulberries. Mm-hmm. My, my grandparents on my mother's side are from Canton, Illinois. I went to Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, which is a wonderful place. There's a lot of mulberries in Jerome right now. Uh, there's all sorts of fun fruit trees. I want to make a mulberry pie. So how'd you wind up in Rhode Island then? Oh, that's where I lived. Uh, my, mom, my mom grew up out there. She went to Bradley and then to Northwestern. Okay. And then she was my dad's boss, like his, his immediate superior at AT&T. Okay. Um, in sales management. Okay. Uh, they, they both did their MBA sales management, and they did Fortran programming and <laughs> all of that exciting Oh, my stuff. goodness. Fortran. <laughs> Sherman set the Wayback Machine. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so when I saw, um, oh, gosh, why am I blanking on the name of the movie with the women in NASA, the, the computers... Uh, oh, hidden, I ju- hidden figures. Hidden figures. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. My memory is not what it was. Uh, You're what now? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um, so when I saw that and I went home, I said, Mom, was that how you did your economics programming? She said, yes, it was. 
Fortran, man. So she's she would have done a lot of stuff on punch cards. Yep. She programmed her own punch cards. Yep. So did my dad. Yep. Um, and yeah, they are they are happy for modern computers. Probably they they could even read assembler code if they needed to. I don't know if they are still well versed. Uh huh. Um, I am tech support. And that's why we were a little uh, late yes. nah, well, today. My, my father needed assistance with audio as well. Uh -huh. He recorded uh, last night's choir rehearsal. Uh -huh. And we had to uh, move it from his phone into GarageBand. So uh -huh. that, was, that was briefly interesting. Sure. Um, sure. Yes. So, yes, I am tech support. Cool. So, the weird question I have about Byzantine music, and it was something that popped in my head today. Yeah. Um, how is it descended from music of late antiquity? Was this sort of a thing that was common? Well, um, or is it kind of developed into its own thing to separate itself from the previous music traditions of the day, or, or what? That's a really interesting question. So, um, okay, so we have, uh, in the ancient Greek world, we have, we have treatises um, that tell us about modes and modal theory and uh, intervals and scales and uh, the ratios that go into intervals and um, so on and so forth and what this mode is, is supposed to evoke and what that mode is supposed to evoke and you know we can sort of reconstruct from those writings what they would have sounded like you know we, 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 we know you know how many microtones they would have divided the octave into and so on and so forth and then um, you have, of course, the the Song of Seleucos, which is yeah, the, the only of, like, epitaph of Seleucos, yeah, the, which is the the first um, fully notated song that we have. Um, is that is that in the entire world or in the Western? The the, the full this the it's the first fully notated song that we know of. Um, so that there is there is music that has been there 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 have so there have been musical excerpts that we have reconstructed from Gilgamesh. Um, and then the, the hymns of Nicole and some stuff from Byblos, I think, too. Yeah, and then there are, there are musical excerpts that we have reconstructed from, um, uh, is it Euripides? Uh, there, there's, there, there's some, um, there, there, there is a, uh, there is a, a, uh, a play where we have a couple of excerpts, we have a couple of, of um, fragments of notation from the chorus parts, um, and uh, um, uh, these predate the epitaph of Sigillos um, by a few centuries, but they're just fragments. We don't have we don't have the whole thing, and we can sort of reconstruct what those would have sounded like. Um, in terms of uh, the Christian world, we have no notated music until maybe the ninth century. Um, and um, we we have we have treatises from um, from people writing about church music where they where they where you know where they express frustration that they can't write anything down that there's no system of writing anything down that it's hmm. just ephemeral and um, so you know you have uh, in some parts of, of the the Roman Christian world um, you know we have records of it taking uh, ten years to learn how to become. Uh, a church singer and you have to learn everything by rote you have to you have to just um somebody who knows everything has to teach it to you 
um, by imitation, and it takes t it's a, it's a ten year process. So it's like um. my my entire um, catechism experience, <laughs> which which was uh, we we called it Hebrew school with Father Dimitri, yeah. and every once in a while he would just say tradition, yeah, tradition. yeah, something like that, and um, you know we know from. Um, we know from fifth century writings, um, from you know fifth century writings of uh, historians from Constantinople, and we know from the writings of even uh, Augustine, you know that that singing the, the singing of psalms and, and and antiphonal singing of psalms was something that you know that that churches did, uh, and that that it was done pretty much everywhere. But we really don't have any idea what it would have sounded like. Hmm. Um, and um, so then, you know, eventually you get... Uh, now, what's interesting, though, is that we, in the textual manuscripts that we have, because we have textual manuscripts for the, for the hymnography, we just don't have musical manuscripts, um, we see ascriptions of um, model melody names. Uh, we see, you know, we'll, we'll see in, like, the... Um, the the Kundakia of Romanos, for example, we'll see that oh this um, this part is supposed to serve as the model melody for this part over here um, in the hymnody of Saint Ephraim the Syrian. Um, we see him talking about uh, you know this is supposed to be sung to this model melody, uh, so on and so forth. But well, we don't know what those model melodies yeah, were. Yeah, we have no idea what those model melodies sounded like. Do we have any theories of like the connection to model melodies? Like, was it a popular song? We don't know. Time or we don't we 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 don't totally know. Um, we have within um, I mean within King David we have that too. The like this is to, to be to be sung to this tune. Yeah, yeah. And um, now what's interesting is that there are scholars who look at the manuscript tradition that we do have for some chance, like for example the. Um, the Kundakion, what we say, what we call the, the Kundakion for, for Christmas, um, uh, the Virgin comes today. Um, that's my favorite. Sorry. Yeah. And the, the, the manuscript tradition that we have for that does indicate that the melody has been preserved fairly conservatively. So the, you know, while it only goes back to maybe the ninth or 10th century, it's identifiably, at least in the broad strokes, the same melody going back to that earliest manuscript witness. Hmm. So it is possible that the tradition has been conservative enough that we retain some element of Romanos' own melody um, for that. But we, we just, we don't know. Um, At what point do the tones that we currently use show up for the first time? Hmm. Well, so the so the modal descriptions again. You know, we have yes, please. Um, you know, we, we see. Uh, you know, we, we see in the textual manuscripts that we have, we see modal descriptions. So we we see indications that oh, this is supposed to be first mode. This is supposed to be second mode. So on and so forth. And we even have some thes some um, uh, treatises that talk about. Uh, the talk about the use of the modal system. So, I mean, this seems to be fairly constant throughout the written record that we have. Now, in terms of um, the relationships, say, of the modal system as we understand it today, 
um, to the modal system as it was understood in, say, the 13th or 14th century, um, there it gets a little stickier, you know, if we, if we, if we try to push it back that far. Um, the, um, you know, we know that there, there is cultural contact happening um, throughout the history of Byzantine music. Uh, you know, Byzantine music is not a, a fixed repertoire and a fixed system where what we have today represents what Jesus dictated to, dictated to the apostles at the Last Supper. It's like, that's, that's not reality. Um, and it was influenced over the centuries from, you know, there, it was influenced by um, you know, folk music, it was influenced by um, uh, music from other parts of the empire, it was influenced uh, certainly by the 18th and 19th centuries, it was, you know, there were, there were Ottoman influences that show up, and... What's an example of an influence from the Ottomans, if oh, morbid curiosity? Sure, so, um, uh, so the Ottomans have a, Ottoman classical music has a, a modal system as well, um, uh, they're called, um, maqams, or maqamat, um, and, um, a lot of these correspond roughly to Byzantine modes, uh, or exactly to Byzantine modes in some, in some instances. Um, and oftentimes, particularly in 19th century compositions, excuse me, um, you will see phrases that are, are, are borrowed from, uh, from different uh, maqams, um, Sometimes you'll even see compositions that are explicitly labeled as we're calling this mode whatever, but this is really maqam whatever. Hmm. Um, so, for example, um, the slow tondespotin uh, uh, that we sing um, uh, for the that we sing uh, at the beginning of the praises in Orthros when there's a hierarchical celebration. Um, there is a, a point, so the, 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 the modal description for that is mode uh, varis, or tone seven, if you like. Um, and there's a section of it where we are in, if we want to think of it in, in terms of Western music, uh, we're basically in D minor. Okay. Um, I love we, D minor. The piece starts off... Um, being in, if we want to think of it this way, um, uh, it winds up being in Phrygian based on a low B flat. Okay. We can think of it that way. And then it moves to D minor. And there's a section of it, there's, there's, a, there's a musical phrase where the melody moves up to what we could think of as F and then moves up to what we would think of as G, which is a perfectly natural move. However, the G is flatted. Something along those lines. And that flatted fourth scale degree in D minor, that is a, that is a borrowing from a maqam. Maqam sabah. Um, and, um, you know, so the... And, and what's, what's tricky is that we see this show up in the manuscript t tradition. We don't know if it being recorded in the manuscript tradition is uh, an indication of when it starts 
when this when this practice starts or if this is just a codification finally of something that's already been going on for a while um, so uh, you know it's a uh, as a musical tradition Byzantine music is really quite flexible uh, in terms of what it is able to uh, adopt and absorb and and repurpose if we like um, and the notation is very yeah, it can I, be. I, I, yeah. Well, not only that, I mean, I witnessed uh, um, on John Michael Boyer's door when we played an epic prank on him one who? point. <laughs> <laughs> you you know damn well who I'm talking yes. about. Yes. Pandora, everyone. He's on there. Yeah, uh, if you ever go and... John is one of my best friends. John's awesome. Uh, hi, John. We're going to make you listen to this, maybe. Um, or not. I don't know. Um, depends on... Make him do it. You know how how much we whine about him not listening. Um, ha. So oh, one point we played a prank on him, mm -hmm. ha. Uh, where basically on his door some wrote in Byzantine notation the traditional Western uh, marriage music or whatever, and it was on his door when we were playing this prank on him where you know someone started this prank where he got married to his then girlfriend at the time and while on vacation and that sort of thing and. Just was wonderful, and he came back saying, "Friends, countrymen, idiots! I did not marry this woman while we were gone." <laughs> in in Boyer fashion, but anyway, uh -huh. um, someone had wrote in Byzantine notation that theme on that door. Yeah, and sure. We're after my own heart. We're giggling. <laughs> well, Jeez. so the uh, ooh. and there's uh. butter as well. Sorry. Do you like butter with your cheese? Uh, with, I've never tried it with. With the Wallace and Gromit reference, I have to say, Memory Eternal, Peter Salas. Memory, Memory Eternal. Eternal. Man, don't make me think about these things. 2017 is shaping up to be like 2016. No, no, it's not nearly as bad as 2016. Oh, man, the death of Chris Cornell hit me hard. So Chris Cornell, for anyone who doesn't know, was Orthodox. Yes, he was. Cool fact. Uh, he, uh, for his second marriage, he married a Greek woman, uh, Vicky Karyanis. And there, are, there are pictures you can find online of. Here, have um, oh, that would make sense. The the two of them chanting a baptism for somebody they were standing godparents for, and and she she said that he converted. There, there's a tweet where she said, "Yeah, he converted when we got married." And uh, Father John Bacchus of the LA Cathedral was the one who gave his memorial service. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Good choice of the sourdough bread. Oh, oh yeah, this is gonna be. Um, it's, it's a pretty good. That's a local. Where's the Where's the bakery? Uh, okay. You have to ask me that. But the um. Sorry, I'm a. Your way. I'm a cheese geek, but I'm a bread snob. <laughs> like I must know my bread. But for me, so far, 20, 2017 is proving much. Iggy's bread of the world. Oh, Iggy's, I love Iggy's. Is being much better than than Cambridge. 2016, but that's mostly personal life. I 2016 was a really crappy year. That was the year of uh, flint knives. The, yeah, I, I called it by the end of the year of flint knives because it was like, you know, almost lost job, um, lost a few friends. Uh, there was the carapocalypse that you happened. I did meet you again. That was a good thing from twenty. No, that 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 that, that seems like uh, that seems like the win. That was the win of twenty sixteen. Interesting circumstances as well. Well, 
Um, and then that was uh, a year ago on Sunday. Yeah. Was the day we met on um, Thank you, re refunded <laughs> on Facebook. Mm. So to finish the story of how we met, mm-hmm. um, as you heard the story of how we met, but how we became friends again is um, Sam Williams was posting something on his blog, and mm-hmm. I commented, and she yeah. found me. Uh, on that comment and then friended me and the first thing that I saw in my head was her sister's death glare um, which almost led me to reject the mm-hmm. friend request which my mother and father have confirmed does exist mm-hmm. and the question is would Tim suffer if he acknowledged it existed <laughs> but anyway thank you are for you that. listening father yeah. Tim <laughs> thank you for the bread and cheese and cucumber thank you for the wine Oh, yes, you're welcome. Indeed, this is quite so, a Going back to the, the music, and mm-hmm. another question for those who aren't as familiar with music like, like myself, I mean, I know a little bit, enough to pretend that I know more and then get me in trouble. I hold uh, Esan. Uh, <laughs> for, for those who don't know, what, what is a mode? And ah, what are you talking about? Sure. So, um, a mode is, so, for any given pitch, and we'll, we'll use uh, pitch names on a piano, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, sharp or flat or natural, right? So for any given pitch, you have, um, you have the octave, right? So you have, um, <clears throat> you know, so you have a C, and then you have, uh, you know, you have the cycle of frequencies above that C such that eventually you get to what's called an, uh, the C, an octave above that C. Okay. Okay. Where it's the same pitch, but it's higher. It is an octave higher. It's a full cycle of frequencies Aww. higher or faster, if you like, um, to, to perhaps be more physically accurate. Um, so then within the octave, you have the... You have to um, do. You have to divide that octave into discrete pitches. Okay. And um, so Western music and Byzantine music both divide that octave into um, into seven steps. Right. C D E F G A B. Uh, in Byzantine music, mi pa vuga di ke zo. But the question is, what are the intervals between those steps, uh, and how do you how do you organize the divisions of that scale? Um, so a mode is basically within a given octave how you organize the um, the pitches within that octave. Um, so, for example. We'll use Western music as the example. If you're looking at all the white keys on a, on a piano keyboard, um, each key, if you start there and go up an octave, that represents a mode. So C to C, that's a mode. That's Ionian mode, or what we call the major mode, if you like. D to D, that's, uh, that's a, another se- that's a separate mode. That's what we call the Dorian mode. Um, E to E, that's the Phrygian mode. F to F, that's the Lydian mode. G to G, uh, that's the Mixolydian mode. A to A, um, that's the uh, Aeolian mode, or what we call the minor mode, the natural minor mode. B to B, that's the Locrian mode. 
Um, now, all of those modes, at least as we understand them in Western music theory, assume what's called an unequal tempered scale, where your smallest possible interval is a half step. Right, so C to, C to D, that's a whole step. Bum, bum. D to E, that's another whole step. Bum, bum. But then E to F, that's a half step. Bum, bum. Um, Byzantine music, again, uh, organizes an octave into seven discrete steps. Um, but then it allows for intervals that are smaller than a half step. Um, so the, the octave is actually divided into 72 microtones mm. instead of um, 11 half steps. And so a, a Western whole step is actually 12 Byzantine microtones. Um, and so uh, there are intervals of 10 microtones, 8 microtones, 4 microtones. Um, so the, the, uh, so a mode is basically uh, how you organize and divide up and structure a given scale and then the pitches in a given scale. So why um, is Byzantine music so much more flexible in that sense in terms of modes and micromodes than Western? Um, the simple or answer... Is there a reason? Yeah, no, there's, there's most definitely a reason. So... Um, the, the reason is that um, Western music um, over... So, Western, so Byzantine music is what's called monophonic, okay. where there is just a... There is a single voice. Um, there is, it is... It is... Byzantine music is structured around the melodic line. Okay. Okay? And the possibilities of the melodic line and what you do within a given scale within that melodic line. Um... Western music, what we what we loosely call Western music, is more based around um, uh, what we call functional harmony, where you are you have multiple voices sounding at once, and you are arranging the way those voices sound against each other in a way that builds up harmonic tension and then resolves it. So if you're listening to Anglican or Gregorian chant of a, well, particularly Anglican chant of mm -hmm. a psalm. Pass the cheese, please. Um, generally, four, um, what do you call it? Four measures of music, or four, um, four bars. And um, each one of those builds up harmonic tension before resolving. Mm hmm. And so that is a system that does not lend itself well to, mo to um, having multiple modes. Um, and so in, 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 um, tonal, in, in music that, that is based on the principles of tonal harmony, you have had um, a reduction of the modes from seven, Ionian, Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, and Locrian to two major and minor. Um, because within a system of tonal harmony, that's what tends to work the best. That's what facilitates this um, system of harmonic tension and release. Um, 
Whereas in music that still relies on a modal system, it's harder to harmonize in that um, in in such a system, and the, so the, the the focus is more on the possibility. The focus is more on the melodic possibilities, and so the a, a system of multiple modes um, gives you more possibilities of what you can do melodically. Okay. And this is a stupid question, but I don't know. Why are they all named after Greek dialects? Ah, Ionian, yeah. So. Or is that a coincidence? Yeah, so this is, um, this is a holdover from an ancient Greek music theory. As is, I mean, as is this idea of what are called authentic or plagal modes. Um, and... Um, I think, uh, if I'm remembering my early music history course well enough, essentially what that comes down to is there were modes that were associated with different islands oh, okay. for one reason or another. Um, the um, and so, But you have, in ancient music theory, ancient Greek music theory, you have Dorian, Hypodorian, Lydian, Hypolydian, Mixolydian, Hypomixolydian, and so on, and... and the, the, the modal system gets even a little more complicated than in terms of the naming conventions. Um, and then the... But what's interesting is that um, quote-unquote Western music um, largely followed the same system up to a point. Um, there were some differences, of course, and the naming conventions weren't exactly the same, um, but... You know, um, but but the there there was sort of the the same root, and um, uh, and even in terms of notation, so Western music, according again broadly defined, um, used a notational system that was very similar to what we think of as Byzantine notation today, up to a certain point, what we call pneumatic notation, where what you're doing is you're instead of indicating pitch by absolute geography um, on a staff, um, uh, you know, plotting a route on a map, if you like. Um, you know, what you have is are signs that tell you what interval to sing based on the last interval or based on the last pitch you sang. So turn by turn directions. Um, and so we, we have, we have uh, Western pneumatic notation up to a point, um, 10th, 11th century. Uh, and then, and then, and then, uh, Western musical manuscripts start playing around with combining the neumes that they have with sort of a convention of, uh, of height to, you know, as, as sort of another way of conveying information. And then eventually you have lines that come in to sort of indicate a fixed point, uh, a fixed point of reference. And then eventually you have more lines that come in, so you have more fixed points of reference, and then we have the staff, as we, as we think of it today. Um, but, uh, you know, there is, there is musicological work out there that, that says that, you know, really there was um, a pan-Mediterranean or a pan-Roman, uh, if you like, uh, sort of uh, musical style that persisted for a long time, that was modal, that was... Um, 
that was uh, microtonal, that, that, that you know, employed intervals smaller than a half step, um, that was you know, fairly floridly ornamented, uh, so on and so forth. Everything that we say Western music isn't. And somewhere along the way, you know, the 11th or 12th century, the uh, Western composers started kind of filing off the edges of that system and, you know, taking a turn away from that musical style into About the, the time of the schism. Oh, well, plus yeah, or minus yeah, a century. Yeah, let's not read too much into that. I, I mean, mean we, I'm not, but yeah. that's a, a good benchmark. Yeah, maybe. Kind maybe. of. You know, we... I mean, we, probably the schism... Or the Battle of Hastings. Yeah, yeah okay, fair enough. I mean, where, what, we, what we see is, um, uh, you know, we have musical manuscripts from, uh, from Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, what, we, what we call by convention Notre Dame polyphony, where we, we, we see kind of this interesting midpoint between the, the, this interesting in-between point between these, between these styles, where you see, um, you know, you see kind of a modal conception of melodic movement, you also see what looks like very much like drone. It's just in upper voice, the upper voices rather than the lower voices. Um, and, but then you also start to see, um, you know, the rudiments of what we think of as harmony in a Western sense starting to emerge. Um, so who knows? Who knows exactly what what uh, what inspired that move? Cody, I think that's your agent. <laughs> no worries. Um, uh, another tangential question: um, Do most—I mean, I, I never really realized, I guess, the flexibility of, of the Byzantine mode, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mode, in my sense, I'm using as in style mm-hmm. um, versus anything uh, like tones, like we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, do most people realize this flexibility of the Byzantine tradition to bring in music from other traditions, like the Ottomans or probably Western influences, like you were talking about earlier? The Russians. And well, the Russians, yeah, the Russians, as well. Um, I. My question is because so many people have this. I I guess it's not a question; it's a comment. Hello, Cody. Use proper words. Use your words. Um, <laughs> That's a phrase we hear a lot in this yes. house. <laughs> Uh, I don't know that people really realize this flexibility of the Byzantine tradition for bringing in parts, and I think most people realize that, or think that the Byzantine mode of music is more traditional and more conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, like, for me, I never knew that there was potential Ottoman influence. Mm -hmm. Well, not potential, it's there, you just explained Mm -hmm. it earlier. Um, Why do people think that Byzantine music is more conservative than Western? I guess is the question I'm getting at here. Well, so this is an interesting question. Um, Well, it is conservative. It's very conservative. But it's also adaptable. Um, I guess adaptable is the word I was looking for. um, The, uh, I mean, what what is amazing is that within the, the manuscript tradition that we have, um, there is a lot of continuity. You know, the, the, yes, there are differences, and we can mark where these differences are, and we know that what we sing today isn't exactly the same as what we sang a thousand years ago, but still, even within that, there's a lot of continuity. Now, having said that, um, so there's, um, 
there's a, a musicologist at Amherst University named uh, Jeffers Engelhart, and he's a specialist in, uh, in Estonian, uh, Estonian music and Estonian Orthodox music in particular. That's Avro Parts landscape, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and Jeffers has this um, really great article um, about, uh, uh, about the musical practice at um, one of the cathedrals in um, uh, the Estonian capital city. What's it called? Um, oh, I don't even um, know that, and that's weird. Uh, I should know this. Um, Let's see if you can beat Google. I have to punch in my, po my code. Um, <laughs> I should know this. I know the next one south, and that's Rika. Yeah, Rika's Latvia. Latvia, and then below that is Vilnius in Lithuania. Where um, the captain in the hunt for October is from. Yes. Um, can, um, oh, gosh. I don't remember my Baltic states as Rainius. well as I should. Not Estonian women. I'm not trying to search for Estonian women. Are you sure about that? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, they're only a stone's throw away. Huh. Why am I blanking on what the city is called? That's where Boris is, actually. Life of um, Boris. Uh, he is based in Estonia. Capital is Tallinn. Yes, Thailand. Thank you. Um, T-A-L-L-I-N-N. So orthodoxy in Estonia is interesting because you have... Um, you have a... a group that is still under the Moscow Patriarchate. That's formerly part of the Soviet Union. Yes. Wikipedia. And you have a group that's under the Ecumenical Patriarchate. Oh my. And these groups don't really get along. Uh, I can imagine um, why. And um, it's interesting because so, 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 so Jeffrey's article is about the musical practice at the cathedral for the group that's under the Ecumenical Patriarchate in, in Tallinn. And um, they use Byzantine chant among other things. And he talks about how um, for this group, using Byzantine chant is a way of defining themselves as being not Soviet. Okay. I um, could see that. And that would be a very important part of that identity for yeah. that group, especially. And, and rooting their musical practice in something that is older than what is seen as, uh, you know, as sort of a way of... of rooting their practice in something older than Russian musical practice. That's sort of giving it more legitimacy, so if you like. No yeah, yeah, correct. Um, and so, so the, 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 the theoretical term that Jeffers uses is a chronotope. You know, this is something that roots what they do in this sense of a particular time that, you know, gives it more weight. Um, also a fantastic new band name. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what style they would be, but what chronotope? Yeah, I would think steampunk. I that actually is what steampunk rap or steampunk mathcore. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry. Steampunk. I don't know, maybe steampunk rap. I'll uh, um. Or steampunk hip hop. Put put up your uh, put on your fighting trousers. What's his name? Oh, Professor something or other. Oh. Oh gosh, what is that? We have officially graduated to a new level of nerdery at this table. Uh, <laughs> professor uh, something. something. Yeah, it is. It, it is indeed saying something. Would, would the group care for more cheese? Yes. Uh, okay. uh, the chap hop is the term that I was looking for for that, but I can't remember the 
Thank you, Anna Corey, for remembering that or bringing that to my attention eons ago. Um, but I can't remember the name, Professor something. Oh. I'll have it in a second. Google is being annoying. His name uh, is Professor Elemental. Yes. Professor Elemental. Yes. Interesting. Okay. So, um, so, so you have for for some Orthodox Christians, there's there's this sense of it a, a Byzantine chant serving as a chronotope, if we like, you know, the sense of rooting what you're doing and how you see yourself in um, in in a past that legitimizes you um and for uh, for for um for some greeks i think uh you know the the what it does is it establishes um a firm tie between present day practice to pre-ottoman practice actually uh, you could argue that some styles of wine work that way like this particular blend uh, because this is what we call a Bordeaux-style blend. Mm -hmm. um, that's a style that was rooted in Bordeaux from, at the very least, as far as we know, 1600s, 1700s, mm -hmm. um, where you have these set grapes uh, that are used to make blends in a certain fashion and a certain way uh, from a certain place and certain styles left to make Bordeaux not only would be could be a chronotope, but also a local taupe. For lack of a better phrase, a topotope. A topotope. There we go. I like that. It's a topotope. We're following this tradition that was established in Bordeaux mm -hmm. eons ago, and thus it provides us legitimacy. Um, which it's funny because you know the New World and Old World styles of wine pride themselves being completely different. Like Old World is all about terroir and the land and how the mm -hmm. land affects the grapes and the wines that are produced, versus the New World approach, which is ostensibly like. The grapes are just a canvas for the winemaker to do their work. <laughs> Tawar is only a part of this, and blah, 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 blah. And it's all about the skill of the winemaker, and fruit forward versus earth forward, and that sort of sure. style of tropes. At, the, uh, at that, the giant tasting of the Grand Arizona Gala thing, um, there was a lot of talk about Tawar. Yeah. But, I mean, ostensibly, you know, in real-world practice, mm -hmm. Tawar is still an important part, and... You often see a blending of that style, and, and Arizona especially is, is driven towards a blend of New World and Old World, where the landscape really comes out in this wine, uh, in the wines. And this one, less so, this is more of a, a New World style in the sense that it's, let's blend grapes from two different regions and, and put them together. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can get on the nose just a little bit of this earthy character, which I associate with Wilcox on the palate, there's a distinct citrus note I'm getting now, that this wine has been open. Um, and that's a citrus note that I associate with Sonoida. Mm -hmm. um, and almost all 100% Sonoida wines are wines that are a lot of grapes from Sonoida. What's the citrus fruit that you're getting? Tangerine. Hmm. Yeah. That's a style or a yeah. flavor that I associate specifically with the landscape around Elgin. Um, but at the same time, the, these landscape tropes of Tawar are being put into a New World style, but at the same time, 
it's simultaneously an old world take mm-hmm. on this new world style. It's like, yes, this is a Bordeaux style blend. This is a chronotrope of a topotrope, mm-hmm. so to speak, where it's uh, a blend style that's been made for generations and generations and generations and generations. Uh, it survived phylloxera even. Um, so it predates this whole idea of phylloxera and uh, pre-phylloxera style. For those that are playing the home game, phylloxera was this parasite that was introduced accidentally into the old world from New World. It was why New World winemaking took so long on the East Coast to do uh, because there was this parasite that basically hmm. ate the... It had grown up with old New World grapevines, i.e. like Lambrusca, like which is what Concord is made from and so on and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. I was wondering when Concord would come in. But Old World grapevines, Vitus vinifera, did not evolve with this. And so they kept getting eaten. People were like, oh, we don't know what's going on. And then invariably because America and French relations were good, it's like, here's some American grapevines. And Phylloxar came in with that uh, and decimated France and Spain and Italy and that sort of thing, and which is where uh, late 18, mid, mid to late 1800s. Okay. Um, and so the, the, what they hit upon to fix the problem was grafting. Basically, you would graft on old world Venice mm. vinifera, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, uh, Petit Verdot, onto new world rootstock. Um, yeah. that had adapted to Phylloxera, grew up with it. And, and we, so it would survive uh, the noted, past. I think we noted, what, was it Greenville, or was it Westport that did that with, where they had Concord rootstock? That was neither. That was actually um, Westport. That was Westport, okay. So if we can generalize that, to, you know, we can say that there is an importance here in, there, there's an importance here in something being a living tradition. Exactly. Um, and there is a really, there's a significant tension in Byzantine music between, um, you know, preserving the chronotopes, if you like, and still being a living tradition. Um, and, you know, even this notion of chanting Byzantine music in English is something that is a really, really sensitive point for some people. Uh, yeah, Just, I've, I've seen that, especially in the GOA in the West Coast, in San Fran, uh, where uh, Metropolitan Eurosimos is very focused on keeping Greekness, as it were, in his parishes. At the same time, the metropolis of San Francisco is the home to Father Spencer Kezios, who is the guy who produces the Narthex Press books. Um, right. And, uh, you, you know, there has been, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there's been a lot of use made of his materials uh, to promote the use of English in uh, metropolis of San Francisco GOA parishes. Um, it just it, it, some of it depends on where you are, to be sure. But I mean, look at the cathedral in Phoenix. The cathedral in Phoenix, um, the, the dean there is Father Apostolos yeah. Hill, aka Kevin, right? I he mean, used to be in Prescott, and I actually yeah. have gotten communion from him before. And and, and who was originally a, a, a Protestant from Indianapolis, who uh, you know then was Antiochian, and then became a, a, a deacon, and then a priest in the GOA, and is now the the dean of the Phoenix Cathedral. I mean, the, there is, um, uh, you know, English is, is sort of becoming a reality that even the Greek only forever people uh, are having to deal with. Um, and, and, you know, it, it is very much a point of identity. It's like, well, this is, this is the, the way that, um, you know, every, every cantor before me, you know, up to five, six hundred years ago has chanted this. We can't. We can't change the language, um, but you know you, you're also trying to reach 
uh, a demographic. You know, you're also trying to reach people in, in, in a world that, that don't have that as their history. Yeah, and, like and us. The, the, language that, the language that their grandmother prayed in is just as important to them as you know, the language of the, uh, the language of Hagia Sophia pre-Ottoman conquest. And now I feel bad that I don't know how to say any prayers in Irish Gaelic. <laughs> or Danish, in my case. Uh, well, in my um, case, my grandmother has gone on record as saying, I didn't go to church, I baked cookies Sunday morning. Um, which, I can't cook cookies, so I guess that means I can't speak her prayer language either. <laughs> I can make cookies. Well, that's good. Part of the problem of why I can't bake cookies because in my apartment I don't have an oven but it's either here or it's a hindrance, yeah. bit of a problem <laughs> and in Jerome it's not hot enough to bake cookies in a car like it is in Phoenix oh. <laughs> uh, the general rule of thumb is Jerome is 15 to 20 degrees colder than than Phoenix so when it's 120 in Phoenix it's 100 or 105 in Jerome but that's tangent um, hi, Danny. all of that is just hot that's just yeah, hot. <laughs> but it's a dry heat. <laughs> but so is the inside of an oven, which, which is, is where you make heat. cookies. A dry heat is still hot. Oh my god. That depends on what chronic illnesses you have. <laughs> that's, that's I true. suppose. <laughs> I suppose. But uh, right, you know, and how the parish in Prescott, where I attend when I have Sundays off, which are rare, unfortunately, uh, how they've kind of solved this whole chronotope versus speaking to the people problem, mm. um, versus we must do Greek things or Greek style. Uh, as per the word from the Metropolitan, mm -hmm. is that uh, the liturgy there is done very Western, very Slavonic style, polyphony and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Orthros and Vespers are very Byzantine. Mm -hmm. um, it's English, but it's still using Byzantine style tones, uh, Byzantine style modes of chant and modes of communication, mm -hmm. but in English. And so that's how that parish has solved the, that issue. Well, it's a multilingual church. There's Sure. And and ironically, even though it's in the GOA, it, it wasn't founded by Greeks. It was founded by uh, a, an Arab family um, who basically went to the Antiochians and said, we want to do this, and the Antiochians said, no. This is the story I've been told. It could be wrong. Putting that in parentheses mm -hmm. uh, so that way I don't get shot by somebody, uh, shot or stabbed or whatever. And so they approached the Greeks then and... Uh, as a mission parish, and now they're a fully-fledged parish of mm -hmm. St. George, which is a very Antiochian name for a parish. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, the, 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 thing to, the, the thing to keep in mind is that even calling it Byzantine chant is, to a certain extent, to reduce it to a chronotope. Um, and Greeks don't call it Byzantine chant. They call it Psaltiki, Psaltiki Techni, the, the Saltic art. Hmm. The, um, um, you know, it's mostly it's mostly us Westerners who call it Byzantine chant to distinguish um, it from other to, early yeah, chants to like Gregorian. Gregorian chant, which isn't really Gregorian, but never mind that now. Um, yeah, that's that's. Um, and so, for you know, in Greece, for example, it is it is very much a a living tradition in the moment. You know, you what 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 tends to be done over here in the states, um, you know, amongst. Uh, you know, cantors who have who have gone out of their way to be educated in the tradition. You know, they tend to be um, uh, people who uh, you know are very well versed in in what would be called the classical tradition of Byzantine music. Whereas in Greece, you know, yes, the 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 the, the so-called classical tradition so-called classical tradition gets done, but there's there's very much a living tradition of the present day of 
you know, these are the these are the composers who you know who are mostly chanting now, and they're not necessarily the same composers who, uh, you know, they're, they're not necessarily the 18th and 19th century masters that everybody over here in the states wants to do. Um, and that note, um, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the what one of the few things I remember from liturgy. One of the few things that was taught. Let me rephrase that in liturgy class in Holy Cross. Uh, was that kind of, there was a real living tradition to liturgy and different tradi translations and traditions of it, and then somehow the tradition out of a monastery in what is now Israel mm -hmm. slash Palestine, depending yeah, on... Yeah, St. Savas Monastery. St. Savas. The Tipicon of Mar Savas. Was the one that kind of won out and yep. got used versus all these other living traditions that kind of got brushed by the wayside. Sure, everything has a history. Everything has... Uh, I think most people who go to a Byzantine church or an... Well, not a Byzantine church, but an Orthodox church in general that's in the Greek or Antiochian tradition, to a lesser extent the Russian tradition, um, they're seeing this monastic rite, mm -hmm. and, and they assume that this is the way it's always been done right. since Jesus, which, right. is, which is interesting that when you get down to it, no, it's really not. And, and it's cool for me to learn that Byzantine style notation and music also is part of this living tradition it's also not frozen in time yeah but i would argue from based on what we've learned here today or i've learned here today um, maybe you guys already knew this and i'm just the the one who's who's the noob um that it is a, a living tradition and survived kind of being more alive and vibrant and vivacious than the liturgical tradition has in a way and and you know what you have here in the states now is you have people composing business you know "Quote unquote Byzantine music," um, you know, for uh, specifically for the English language, specifically for the requirements of the English language, who are themselves native speakers of English. You know, so you have an extension of that living tradition, a grafting onto the local stock, if you were, if if, uh, if you like, um, that is uh, that, that is happening and and that is, uh, you know, that is taking root here in in a way that. Uh, no doubt would have not been at all anticipated, um, you know, in, for example, St. John Cucuzelis' day, right? I mean, barbarians composing business, composing Celtic music? I Heresy. don't think so. That's not going to happen. It's more likely than you think. Barbarians, barbarians composing Celtic music? It's more likely than you think. But makes me think of those spam ads that you see. At the same time, I mean, there isn't as much difference, I think, between what we think of as Byzantine music in its in in a lot of its fuller expressions and Western music as some would want to assert. There are, you know, there are are uh, Byzantine compositions where, if you were to transcribe them into Western notation and put them side to side. Um, with a piece of uh, you know, a piece composed by Bach, for example, you'd notice a lot of similarities. You you would notice a lot of very similar treatment of the melody. You would notice a lot of similar ornamentation. Um, and it, you know if, uh, what what's interesting is that the the Byzantine compositions I'm thinking of would predate Bach by a century or two. Oh, wow. Um, so it's... What, what's an example? Out of sure. So there's a genre of... There's a genre of, of Celtic music called the, um, the Caliphonic Irmos. And it's not a liturgical genre. It's a... It's a... Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a genre that's intended for banquets or 
uh, or you know, concerts, this kind of thing. It's it's if it's sung in church, it's not sung in church during the liturgy itself. Okay. Um, it is it is not intended for liturgical use, but it is still within the tradition of the Celtic art as used in the liturgy. Um, and um, these are pieces that are. Um, you know, the, the, that are intended to be virtuosic, consciously musical pieces rather than settings of liturgical text. Okay. Um, and, you know, so there, there are extremes of range. There is a lot of ornamentation of the melody. There is a lot of what we call text painting where, you know, the, the, the melodic line is intended to, to mimic, um, you know, some element of what's being described in the text. Um, the text itself is not necessarily a liturgical text. Usually it's a, an earmost from a canon, but it is not necessarily. Um, and if you take some of these um, caliphonic compositions uh, and, and you look at them, uh, you know, if you look at them just in terms of melodic movement, you look at them and you think, wow, this is, this is really Baroque music. But it predates Baroque music by a century or two. Uh, depending on the composer, this is you know, but it's like yeah. So is it possible that this music influenced Baroque, or well, or did they maybe develop? I don't know independently, but along the same kind of I you know, who, who knows trellis so to speak of but, society. You know, there there is there's a there's a particular there's a particular piece I'm thinking of where after I sang through it, I was like, wow, is there some possibility that Bach could have ever heard this? But Bach never left Germany that we know of. Um, so you know, I think what I think piece? it's out of curiosity. Oh, hang on. I'm I'm very curious about this myself now. <laughs> this just got interesting, folks. Well, it's been interesting, obviously. It's about to get geeky, I guess. Or about geekier. to get. Yeah. About to get. Veer in another geeky direction. We must go deeper. Exactly. Is it Inception or is it C.S. Lewis? Porque nos los dos. Okay, so this is a piece that's um, uh, attributed to one um, Demetrius the the Mesticos. Um, where's the part here that I remember thinking? Wow, this could be this could be Bach. Um, so something like this, maybe. Um, uh, this is this is a, a bit from the middle of the piece. I just sang it 
That's the way a Byzantine cantor would be inclined to sing it. But if you just look at the way the melody line is written. Some, the, 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 if, you, if you take out all the interpretation and just look at the way the line is written, there's something very kind of clockwork about huh. it that is very, very similar to the kind of melodic line Bach would write. You could also very easily put an orchestra under that. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. would be, ooh, that'd be a fun project that no one will ever do because that would be a lot of work. Bach style Byzantine chant. Yes. <laughs> and invariably, someone would be like, he's heresy. Well, was it Bach style Byzantine chant in 14th century Russia? Is outrage. Right. <laughs> and then he would be like, well, no, this isn't 14th century off Russia, so no. <laughs> he always says 19th century Russia, which is like, oh, that's right. That so, is 19th. It's so modern. Why would you go with 19th century Russia? <laughs> it's called historicization. Um, anyway, uh, you know, so the, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's important, it's important to remember that, you know, while chronotopes are useful, it is still a living tradition with, you know, a living, a living creative impulse. Just like um, winemaking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we are out of wine. Sad. Which I suppose means we must bring this to a close. Yeah, we got more puns. Give me time. <laughs> Do we have time. questions about the wine? Give me time. Give me oregano. Give me parsley. Mm -hmm. I can spice things up very easily. That'll be good to take to the fair. Uh huh. <laughs> it's true. Scarborough. Exactly. Yep. There is a winemaker in Arizona called John Scarborough. Mm -hmm. And that's our connection to puns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, gang, I suppose we should bid everybody adieu. Uh, after you, well, this was fun. Let's do it again sometime. Oh, we will, for sure. Um, thank you for, for hosting me and for allowing me to uh, record this and for allowing us to have this wonderful meshing of the minds and, and styles and music versus wine and that sort of thing. I think. Uh, and we have now discovered that the sharp cheddar is an excellent pair. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so the tentative plan for, for this podcast is that we will both host it on our respective podcasts uh, as a cross pollinization. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what the ancient faith boys think of that. You know, um, if if not, then you know, it'll yeah. you know be sure to follow his podcast as well. Um, if any of the other ancient faith gang wants to hang out with me and do a podcast uh, more, uh, you know, about theology and wine uh, versus about uh, theological music and wine, uh, I'm also game. Because um, it is really interesting exploring how many of uh, the parables of Christ are relating or can be related to wine and vineyard making and vineyard management and that sort of thing. Old wine and new wineskins. Uh, pruning and I am the vine and I am the vine dresser. Or new wine and old wine skins. Which is that? New wine, old wine. New wine and yes. old wine skins. Yes, thank you. And all of that fun. Mm -hmm. um, 
So tune in again. Uh, we will be doing this again at another point. Um, I don't know when. I don't know where, but it will be happening again. Well, thanks for having us. Well, thanks for having me here, too. You bet. Anytime. As long as you bring the wine. Of course. That's implied. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Otherwise, everyone would be whining about it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Zing. <laughs> All guys. Tune in again next for the next podcast. Um, it will be about something different. I don't know about what yet. This wasn't different enough? <laughs> it was perfectly different, which oh, is perfect. why it was fun. Uh, not that any podcasts I've, I've not done are fun, but uh, I may or may not be recording one on the night of July 1st when I'm down in Sonoida, because uh, Kent Calligan, who's kind of the godfather of Arizona wine, he's been doing it longer than anyone else, um, in terms of being the individual winemaker for a specific vineyard, which is Calligan Vineyards. Um, uh, he's famed for having very epic research nights with three or four or five different bottles and mm. Just exploring the region or different styles, and he's agreed to do one on the 1st of July when I get down to Sonoina, um, which is something that sadly you will miss because you won't be able because to make my it. My sister's going to be having a baby. Oh, that's you see. Much farther away than I would like. They're in Michigan. Yeah. But uh, so we may or may not record that. I don't know. Um, but it, not, it may be that nothing we drink is Arizona, so it may not be able to be uh, really related to the podcast. But uh, I'm rambling, so I'm going to shut up. Uh, until next time, gang, uh, have a good evening. All right, take care. Good night, Night Vale. Good night. Good night, <laughs> night Vale. Nice. Are you guys Night Vale fans, too? I, I, I've listened to it a few times. Yeah. Yes, it is fantastic. Uh, it has been joked that I should be uh, a guest character for the sommelier at the fancy restaurant in Night Vale, uh, which will have, okay. like... 100% French Carmenere and uh, Gros Verdot blend or something ridiculous like that, which are both varietals that are historically part of Bordeaux but are not really there anymore. And that explains the joke. But time is weird. So is space. And I one day... Match against and they will, guys. Alrighty. Now we're going. Bye! Bye! <laughs>